The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 5th, 2024. On this week's show, the athletic Chantel Jennings will join us to talk about Juju Watkins, Caitlin Clark, and the stars of women's college basketball doing very starry things. The Washington Post's Will Hobson will also be here to discuss his story on the broken promises of the NFL's concussion settlement. And finally, we'll speak with NBA Hall of Famer and U.S. Senator Bill Bradley, who's now also the star of a one-man show about his life, Rolling Along, an American Story. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of the book, The Queen, and I'm in negotiations to have Bill Bradley star in a one-man show about my life. But so far, he has given me a resounding no. Our colleague Stefan Fatsis is off this week rehearsing Word Freak the Musical. But with me, as always, from somewhere near the slides and merry-go-rounds of Palo Alto is Slate's own Joel Anderson. Joel, uh, was there ever a drama club era? Were you ever in a school play? The only thing that I remember about being on stage for something like that was, um, I think it was Go Texan Day when I was in elementary school and I got to wear a cowboy hat and uh, shoot a cap gun. And I think that was pretty <laughs> much the end of my acting career. <laughs> but I, I do remember loading those cap guns into my little gun and shooting it off. And that, that was a lot of fun. I, I used to, you know, I used to wear cowboy boots and hats, not infrequently in elementary school. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm real, real loud Texan here, buddy. I'm sure some very cute photos, and you definitely went out, went on on top in a blaze of glory. I remember being told in lower school, elementary school chorus to just mouth the words. You didn't sing. You didn't actually contribute to the <laughs> to the production itself. Then you were faking. I was told to mouth the words. Did I actually sing? You know, I don't. I don't want to say that I, you know, went against authority, but uh, you know, we'll we'll have to go to the go to the tapes to to do some analysis on that. <laughs> What was the role then? What was the what was the specific role? I mean, we sang a whole collection of songs to people in nursing homes at school assemblies, you know. Nursing homes? All, really? all that stuff. Yeah, to entertain the the local elderly. You never did that? You never went as like a school class to go um, hmm. you know, do a little show for No, I thought that was just like a community theater thing or something, or you know. I mean, I don't, I don't think the elderly get Make a Wish Foundation, but maybe, maybe when you get a little older, in like two or three years, you'll have some local elementary school kids come by your place, and then you'll know that you've really, (laughs) you've really made, you've really made it, or you're in the right community. Wow. Well, I mean, you, I mean, are you saying what I'm going to be elderly then? Because I'm already middle aged. In two (laughs) Two or three three years, you know, you've got a little, you got a little bit of a runway. You're saying that because I've got gray in my beard, I'm sure. So. We want to thank our Slate Plus members of all ages for making this show possible. And we've got a nice uh, bonus segment for you, as we do every week. Uh, Coming up, our guest, Chantel Jennings, who you're about to hear from. Um, We're going to speak with her about the winningest college basketball coach of all time, Stanford's Tara Vanderveer, uh, who Chantel profiled recently for The Athletic. If you want to hear that and you want to hear bonus segments on other Slate shows and get ad-free listening and support us, you need to be a Slate Plus member. Go to slate.com slash hangup plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. 
On Friday night, freshman Juju Watkins scored 51 of USC's 67 points in the Trojans' upset road win over fourth-ranked Stanford. Watkins' total broke a school record, which is no small feat at a place that counts Cynthia Cooper, Lisa Leslie, and Cheryl Miller, among other Hall of Famers. And then, on Saturday, Iowa's Caitlin Clark went on the road for a primetime showdown against Maryland and stole some of the spotlight back from Watkins. Clark didn't put up half a hundred, but she did score 38 and have a season-high 12 assists and a 93-85 win before a sellout crowd of 17,950, among them our very own Josh Levine. We'll get to him in a minute, though, because right now we've brought on Chantel Jennings. Chantel covers women's college basketball for The Athletic, and she's one of the hosts of The Athletic Women's Basketball Show. Chantel, thanks for coming on again with us today. Thanks for having me. Always happy to chat women's basketball with you guys. Absolutely. So let's start with what happened in College Park on Saturday. And so on your podcast, I heard you and your co-host talk about the importance of these nationally televised games living up to their billing. So I'm assuming Caitlin and company met that standard on Saturday night. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was a good game. Maryland is a team that had really high expectations this season. They were a top 20 team on most people's radar, I would say, coming into the year. Uh, Brenda Fries is an excellent coach who usually puts together a team that has a lot of offensive firepower. They had players coming back. Cheyenne Sellers is a very exciting player, future WNBA -er. Um, But they've kind of underachieved in the beginning of the season. But this was a game that Brenda afterwards said showed that they were a tournament team. They really played up to Iowa's level here on primetime, on Fox, this sort of big stage Maryland really showed up, but so did Iowa. And, and Caitlin hasn't had as much success against Maryland, despite all of her success in the Big Ten. I don't think she had won at Maryland before, so this was sort of a personal thing for her. And I assume, though, she wouldn't have said that probably because it's all about the team. But yeah, I think it was just all of those factors. Fox, like, you know, following her around the big show, the big stage, the big expectations. And it was a good game. It was close. It was a great game. And Chantel, the last time you were on, you said you were curious how I would feel after seeing Caitlin Clark in person. And now I can, yeah. I can, and? I can tell you it was at a really amazing show. It was a spectacle. I mean, I heard overheard people saying that they had never seen traffic like this before a game for Maryland football or men's basketball. I mean, the stands were filling up, you know, a long time before the game first possession. She makes a deep three after 30 seconds, I'm doing the math. Is like, all right, she's on pace for 240. Let's see if she can. <laughs> let's see if she can keep that up. But you know, after every made basket, you're doing the kind of mental calculus. Is it like 60 40 Maryland fans, 70 30? Because the Iowa fans travel really well. That's a part of why um, the stands were full. But a thing that I didn't, I think, fully think about or comprehend going into the game is that a reason why it's so great to see a superstar like this and to have a superstar in the game and to have this like primetime game on Fox with Gus Johnson and all the hoopla is that the opponent rises or often rises to the level of that challenge. And Maryland, as you were saying, has had a disappointing year, but they played like maybe you would, you would know better than, than us, but played like maybe a top 20, 15, top 10 team. And for stretches played like a top final four team. I mean, they outscored... Iowa on a stretch of the third quarter by 20 points. And there was a kind of crescendo there that led to another late Caitlin Clark three. And it was just a great kind of competition. And after the game, Cheyenne Sellers, who you mentioned, um, talked in the press conference about how she had had a knee injury. She was clearly not 100%. She had this big brace on. 
but she said, you know, she had told herself she was playing no matter what, whether she had to have 10 hours of physical therapy. And so that I think is the explanation that like Caitlin Clark brought the best out of the crowd, brought the best out of the best player on the other team. Um, and it just made for what an event that I felt like really lived up to its its billing. And so all credit to everybody. I'm curious if I can turn the tables on you and ask a yes. question on your podcast. Having having seen her on TV, and, and we had talked before, you said you really wanted to see her in person. I've watched Caitlin in person many times. Was there anything that surprised you or that maybe you hadn't really seen on TV or you hadn't noticed on TV that you saw in person with her? Or I guess beyond sort of the feel of the arena and what you noticed there, but with her game or with with her as a person or a player? Yeah, so a couple things. Well, first of all, the Caitlin Clark cam kind of slightly defeated the purpose of being, I was like, I can watch her the whole game and nobody else will be able to see that except for the thousand streaming the Caitlin Clark cam that Fox provided live on TikTok, um, you know, befitting her, her stardom. But yeah, when you watch her throughout the entire game and try to see what she sees, I mean, she, you know, Steph is kind of a natural comparison, Steph Curry, because of the deep threes. But coming away from this, she reminded me more of Luca, to be honest. Um, you know, when Luca scored 73 mm. the other day and I've, you know, tuned in and we had our whole conversation about whether it's good or bad for the game, putting that aside, it's like when you double her or when you double him, she finds teammates. Like that's the thing that the 12 assists, like you go in expecting the deep threes, the sidestep trees, all of that. It's like awe inspiring in person, but the way that she's able to see the game and often with these like really early like hit ahead passes outlet passes that i i guess i hadn't fully appreciated and like i was finishing wasn't that good it could have been like 18 <laughs> assists and so that was like maybe the slightly negative thing or the human thing is like i saw her roll her eyes when one of her teammates missed a layup in the first quarter she complains to the officials constantly um and that <laughs> to me is like, all right, she's ready for the pros. That's like Luca, that's like Luca level <laughs> stuff right there. Well, Josh, and that's the thing. I don't know if you guys, or Chantelle, I'm sure you did, but right before halftime, she was talking about how physical it was and how, you know, I mean, basically she was complaining during her live interview about basically Marilyn and, and how physical they were playing her. So I didn't, I had no idea that that's uh, the ongoing commentary from she's her. A, out she's there a on complainer. Too, she complains. I mean, there was this moment where she slammed the ball to the ground and caught it and the crowd was screaming for a technical. I mean, that stuff kind of came back to bite her in the national championship game last year. I mean, kind of wrongly, I think the the refs didn't necessarily give her the, the leeway in that game. But I also just feel like I got an appreciation for the burden on not just her, but any kind of great athlete. I mean, it is more like a, in some ways, like a concert. I mean, people are there to see her. She just gave everybody what they wanted um, and the ability to do that, knowing that if you look at these like bar graphs that people were making, it's like 9,000 more fans than on average go to Maryland, 8,000 more fans than go to Northwestern. Like knowing that people are there for you and being able to deliver. And then like, and the again, in the post-game presser, like the Maryland players come in, it's like, you know, no big deal. When Caitlin comes in, there were two police officers that were with her and like Francis Tiafo is in the background. She's like, Oh, Hey, what's up? What's up? And they're like dapping each other up afterwards. I mean, like it's a different level of like celebrity, but also of pressure and of ma mania. And so just like maximum respect 
to anybody who um, feels that and just puts on the show that so many people are paying like crazy amounts of money to see. Yeah, I think that to me is the part that really, like she hasn't disappointed this year. Like you mentioned, every arena that she's playing in is selling out. You were saying, you know, maybe it was like 60-40, 70-30 Iowa, Maryland fans. Like, I don't think that accounts for the people who just showed up to watch Caitlin. Like, there are Iowa fans, certainly, who are there, but I would say probably 40% of the people there were just there to see Caitlin. You know, they don't have any affiliation to Iowa or Maryland necessarily for their women's basketball teams, I would say. A lot of these people are just showing up to see Caitlin, and I think for any individual player to have that level, you know, that we've sort of have seen these put on teams, right? Like the win streaks that, you know, UConn had, where it was like, you show up and the pressure is on the team, and, and maybe there's a star in that bunch like Stewie, but like, There's also a ton of other future WNBA players on that team shouldering that load or Tennessee or South Carolina, sort of with that freshie class, the win streak that they had at home. You have that group and maybe a lot of it is on an Aaliyah Boston or a Diana Taurasi or a Candace Parker. But like with Iowa, it is Caitlin. Like the people are there to see Caitlin. All right. Well, so we're talking about great scores. And so it seems like a good time to pivot towards Juju Watkins. And um, I don't know how many people saw that because part of the reason the Pac-12 won't exist after the next few months is that uh, not a lot of people have the Pac-12 network, which is what that game played on. I actually have Pac-12 network and um, actually Stanford is right around the corner for me. So I missed that game. You know, Chantel, I, you know, obviously, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the highlights and everything now. And we talked about Juju the last time you were on, but... This is, I guess, fair to say, like, this was her introduction to the rest of America, I imagine, right? Is that the way you think of it? I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends who we're talking about, maybe to the people who aren't paying attention to women's basketball. And Mm -hmm. it takes a game like that, 51 of a team, 67 points. Like, anyone who does that against a Stanford, you know, she's not doing this against a bottom-of-the-barrel sort of team. Like, she's doing it against Stanford on Stanford's floor, Games after Tara Vanderveer becomes the winningest coach in college. Like, so there's all of that, right? We're talking about players showing up in those big moments and not disappointing. So, yeah, I I suppose you could make the argument that this was her introduction to America. But for those of us who've been really following her, like, she's filling up Galen Center in L.A. Like, you have musicians and Kevin Hart showing up to sit courtside and watch her like she's teaching him how to do like the Trojan hand sign like after the game. I was down in L.A. to to do a piece on Juju earlier this season and I had obviously seen her play. I've talked to coaches who've had to coach against her. I went and saw her high school, met her high school coach and, and sort of I've been waiting for everyone else to sort of see what I've seen. But I think similarly to what we were just saying about Caitlin, this ability to shoulder a lot for a team is really interesting and she's only a freshman but she also just has this and I hate when sports writers talk about like they have that thing that it whatever but like sitting with Juju I was like you're different she is different in terms of charisma or I am convinced she could miss 25 shots in a row and she is gonna take the game winner because she knows she's gonna make it like she is just her confidence in her game and herself and being able to put it together. And I think also how that team is built. USC and Iowa sort of have some similarities in terms of 
how they're building their team and around players. And I think what makes it really interesting is how Lindsay Gottlieb, the USC coach, has talked about Juju. Like, she's not shying away from the fact that the best player on the team is a freshman. Um, and she's she's said it very publicly. You know, it's not subtle how good Juju is, and we're not going to sort of dull that fact. Like, she speaks about her in a very different way that I think a lot of times in team sports, there's sort of this desire to shy away and you know, I went to Michigan, so it's all the team, the team, the team, like, right. And I think a lot of teams in college sports, especially feel that, but with Juju, with Caitlin, with these sort of talents, you can't do that. And it, it's a disservice to both the sport and the player and the team to sort of like gaslight people and think like, this is, you know, it obviously is the team, but also it's, it's Juju. What an indictment, not to, not to harp on this, but what an indictment of the PAC 12 that like the woman who's in LA, who's like a superstar, who has so much charisma, who all the like celebrities love and like has these crazy endorsements is like impossible to find on television. And like the woman at Iowa is like ubiquitous and is like on Fox and in primetime. And like it's it's not just the game on Friday, Chantel. She played on Sunday, yesterday as we're recording this, scored 29 against Cal and another victory. That's a moment. It's like, wow, Juju Watkins scored 51. I really want to see her again on the Pac-12 network. Again, <laughs> nobody could watch it. And so yeah. I guess there is an opportunity for her, you know, presuming she's going to stay in school. She has to. Yeah. Um, USC is going to go to the Big Ten. Like she's going to get more famous, bigger, more spotlighted, presumably as she grows and improves. But I guess presumably also more more pressure on her, too. Yeah, and I think the way that the Big Ten has a few big stars coming up, Cody McMahon at Ohio State, she's a sophomore reigning Big Ten freshman of the year. The beginning of the season was a little disappointing for her. I think she has, she's the whole package as well, is someone that I think could be a huge star in this game. Juju obviously going to be a huge star in this game, and I think it'll be interesting as, you know, the Big Ten becomes the first bi-coastal conference that you'll have a player who's in Columbus that people in LA and the DC area and the New York area and the Chicago area can see. This is just occurring to me. I could go see Juju in Maryland. Yeah, you'll be able to see Juju. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's like, I think it'll be interesting to see how this new wave of how conferences are built and all of this is driven by TV money, right? Like how that fuels the stardom of these players who now have an opportunity to play in the biggest markets within their conference every single year. I do want to talk about how good she was because there was a clip. They sent out a clip of all of her points. And the one thing that I thought about, I mean, she had Stanford in hell, man. Like they had a five foot seven guard gardener one time and then they switched a bigger defender on her and she still is just killing them with this mid-range game. And I'm like, her athleticism and skill level for freshmen, like it is mind-blowing like I I don't I mean obviously I'm I don't I haven't followed women's college basketball as closely as you have Chantel but like can you just give me some sense of how good she actually is because I it's hard for me to remember seeing somebody that athletic like it just seemed like she had been dropped onto the floor from the WNBA already yeah she's one of those people that you need to rewind the tape to understand how she did something like you can't process all of her plays in real time because you're looking at her and she's at the three point line 
And then there's four people between her and the basket. And somehow she gets there and finishes. And you're like, wait, hold on. I want to watch this again. How did that happen? Talking with Lindsay Gottlieb, her coach, one of the things she said is so impressive to her about Juju. And this is someone who coached in the NBA, like has coached at the highest levels of professional basketball. She said the way that she adjusts in game is fascinating. The way that she adjusts in practice is fascinating. She's not going to make the same mistake more than once. And I think that's what we see with all the great players in any sport. It's that they can self-correct in real time. And so you see her sort of in a game, you know, get better and better as it goes on. And, and I think as the season has gone on, obviously adjusting to the speed and the physicality of the college game. She's someone who, like, at when they played UCLA earlier this year, literally it's like, she her body goes until the end of the game and then she was on the floor her calves were like cramping entirely and afterwards I don't know how many times Lindsay Gottlieb said in the post-game press conference hydration like she just like she has this ability to just push her body exactly as far as her team needs it and then it's like okay I can rest I can I've done my job for this team I mean she's magnificent on the court and she was a joy to chat with. Like she was very, she's also very humble. She's pretty quiet in general. Like she's, she's a very, I would say a quiet person. But when we were sitting together at USC, we were supposed to chat for 20 minutes and the media person came back in and was like, Juju, it's 20 minutes. And she's like, no, I'm good. We can keep talking. Like she's very, she's very much sort of operating as a professional right now. And I think NIL feeds into that, that she's having these professional experiences, but she's very mature um, and just very chill. Like, very easy to chat with. And we were just talking about, you know, everything from California to basketball. She was asking me questions about myself and it was just an easy conversation. She's she's an easy person, I think, that fans are going to find to root for. Well, we're going to bring Chantel back for the bonus to talk about her big profile on the coach who failed to contain Juju Watkins. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, Chantel covers women's college basketball for The Athletic, one of the hosts of The Athletic Women's Basketball Show. Uh, once again, Chantel, thanks for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Up next... Will Hobson of the Washington Post, who wrote recently about the broken promises of the NFL's concussion settlement. In 2018, when the former NFL player and broadcaster Irv Cross was 78 years old, a doctor diagnosed him with dementia. At that point, Cross's symptoms were obvious. He struggled to speak coherently, forgot to change his clothes, and suffered from urinary incontinence. But that wasn't enough to get him and his family a payout from the NFL's more than a billion dollar concussion settlement. Instead, they were told that he does not appear to qualify for any diagnosable conditions through the NFL program. In 2021, Cross died without his family getting a cent. Joining us now is Will Hobson. He's a sports investigative reporter for The Washington Post, and he spent months looking into the aftermath of the NFL's concussion settlement. Will, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Irv Cross story is the lead anecdote in your piece. I was quoting from your piece there. But as you show, it's not really exceptional. So how is it that so many ex-players who clearly have dementia are getting rejected from this settlement, which is supposed to compensate ex-players with dementia? Uh, I mean, well, simply put, the the settlement itself has its own def- definition for dementia that is requires more impairment, requires you to be more impaired than the normal definition that doctors and neurologists use across the country and hospitals and clinics every day. 
So, you know, based on the description, all of us kind of lay people would say that Irv Cross has <laughs> had dementia. His personal doctor said that he had dementia. It seems absurd to suggest that there's like some stricter definition that players would need to fulfill. And also, as you note in your piece, he's one of many players who were diagnosed with CTE after their deaths in an autopsy, which would suggest that, yes, what what his doctor said is true. He was really suffering. Right. I mean, diagnosing dementia is there's always going to be a degree of subjectivity to it. It's not a diagnosis like cancer, where there is just like an objective biopsy you can take to show the presence or absence of something. But the way the settlement defines it, they basically require to be you to be significantly further along the progression, uh, closer to moderate dementia than uh, how a doctor would normally diagnose it, where they try to catch it early, get you on medication so you can manage your symptoms and uh, your quality of life can be a whole lot better in those last few years as things start to uh, progress. So, Will, I mean, the, the NFL and, you know, many of its supporters have touted this settlement over the years. Like, they were very, they've been very proud of it publicly, you know, for more than a decade now, right? And I'm just sort of curious, how was this supposed to work, though? Because, obviously, if you were a former football player who thought that, you know, you suspected you might have CTE, had a conventional dementia diagnosis, like, what was this process supposed to work like? It was supposed to be, as it was described, as like the world's most efficient post-retirement healthcare program for NFL players concerned about developing dementia or brain diseases. Uh, there was going to be a nationwide network of doctors that would evaluate you free of charge. If you had early signs of dementia, if you didn't even have full-blown dementia, you had early signs, they were going to get you money for medical care. And then as you progressively got worse, you were qualified for up to two different lump sum checks. Uh, so that's how it was described. And I think it's difficult to overstate how important in the history of the NFL this settlement was because it really did effectively take the concussion crisis and just wrap it up and put it in their rearview mirror. And within a year of this thing being signed, sealed, and delivered, we're no longer really talking about concussions and CTE on a daily basis to the degree that the media was in that 2011 to 2014 timeframe. And so, Will, to that point, like it did seem like it wasn't part of the mainstream conversation about the NFL anymore. It sort of faded into the background. So what got you looking into these cases again? Was there was there any, you know, former player or somebody in particular that made you say, oh, well, I need to, you know, check back into this and see how the settlement is actually working? So in, in August 2020, in the midst of the pandemic and George Floyd and the world blowing up every day, uh, the settlement returned to the news with this lawsuit that made these rather alarming allegations that uh, basically there was a racist formula that was making it more difficult for black players to qualify for dementia payments. So that we started looking into that. We wrote a few stories about that. And as I was talking to lawyers and former players around the settlement, I kept hearing, you know, hey, this this race, this racial race norming thing, which is really complicated and we can explain and we talk about it later if you want. Um, it's just one of many of the bag of tricks that the firm that oversees this process and the NFL has to avoid paying legitimate dementia claims. Yeah, we've talked about the race norming issue on this show before, and it um, is just one example of how this settlement kind of hasn't worked in the way that it was touted. Um, you mentioned the kind of smoothness that was supposed to happen here. 
Um, but as you reported, 15 months on average for a player to even get an appointment with one of these settlement doctors. And the settlement for the NFL was this kind of victory, was was this coup. It was touted as them really caring and, and helping about players, maybe got it out of the news. I'm, I'm asking you to do a little bit of conjecture here. Do you think that they thought that the news cycle was was over? Do you think that they thought that nobody you know would care at this point? Because if you talk to these individual players, it's just one kind of alarming and monstrously sad story after another, and none of it reflects well on the NFL. I mean, I think two things. I think the NFL absolutely thought that they would be closing this story for the most part from a public relations standpoint. Um, by agreeing to the settlement. That was one main benefit. That, and their, their attorneys have been open about that, that as they were calculating whether or not to agree to this, uh, one concern is no matter how well how this plays out, if we don't settle, we're going to be looking at this in the news for years on end. So there's that. The other thing that I, I do want to emphasize is that the NFL will repeatedly point to how much money they've paid to show how this settlement's clearly been a good deal for the players, $1.2 billion. But what that ignores is how many players there are out there who have failed to qualify. I mean, there are close to 1,100 former players who have had dementia claims denied. Uh, 300 of them have gone through the settlement's networks of approved doctors. So you've got approved doctors who the NFL has signed off on who are diagnosing dementia, and you've got 300 guys who still can't get paid. I think both things can be true. It's co- this settlement has cost the league $1.2 billion, but there could be potentially more than 1,000 guys out there uh, worth to the league another $700 more million or more who, who could or should have gotten paid. So, Will, and I, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you about like what my bias was here, because when when I hear that there was another story uh, related to the concussion settlement, my first thought was, what else is there new to talk about here? Like, this is sort of, you know, old hat. I didn't want to read anything else about, you know, not that I didn't want to read anything about it. Right. But I'm just like, eh, what else could there possibly be? And obviously, you're a great reporter. You did a fantastic job with this story. But like, how difficult. Is it to get people to still care about these players and their plight? And like, what has been the response been like um, since you published the story? I mean, I think, you know, I I had that bias going into it, too, as a reporter. And I I do think that that is there is a, a degree of reader apathy on this issue. And, you know, I can tell you from an audience perspective, the story did did well, but well enough to justify our time investment, but not. Not so well that off the charts compared to, you know, what our Super Bowl game day coverage will do uh, later this week. And so, you know, one thing I think we think about in terms of future reporting is that, you know, the the lawyers and firms involved with this case uh, are involved with mostly every major class action settlement that occurs in this country. So the if if the issues that are occurring in this case are occurring in other cases, uh, then the the potential. audience affected extends far beyond the NFL. Christopher Seeger, the the top lawyer for the players, as you describe him, did actually talk to you. Um, a lot of people who are involved in this case chose not to, but um, he kind of endeavored to explain himself. But one of the lead plaintiffs, I think the only one who's still living, claims that Seeger did not tell him that there would be this enhanced definition of dementia. And there was this kind of interesting discussion in the piece about how, um, like you were just saying, 
that this is sort of representative of class action cases where the plaintiff, you can't really fire the lawyer um, in the same way that you can if you're not satisfied with your representation, if it's just like a one-on-one sort of situation. So I thought that was interesting that you have this dispute where this top lawyer who's done like so many huge class actions claims like, yeah, I told the players this and like this was the best we could do. And the lead plaintiff is like, he never said this to me. And the first time I'm hearing about this is you, like Will Hobson, explaining it to me. Yeah. And I I think that that as some of the experts I talked to said, this is kind of representative of concerns they have about how these big, what are called class actions or mass torts or multi-district litigation cases play out, is that for court efficiency, you basically have a small group of lawyers who get to decide what is the best deal for thousands or you know, more than 10,000 plaintiffs. And so it's, it's basically a handful of lawyers for the plaintiffs and the judge uh, and then the defense. And some of those lawyers have a financial incentive to see that settlement agreed to. Um, there isn't, there isn't, their financial interests are not aligned with fighting this thing as long as possible. And that was a, a critique of Mr. Seeger, the lawyer for the players from the beginning, was that, you know, we didn't, they didn't fight this case to the point where Roger Goodell is looking at having to sit for a deposition and, and answer questions under oath about what exactly his top researchers were telling him as he was publicly saying or disputing any link between the NFL and brain disease. It's interesting you, you, we talk about Seeger here because another person that, that comes up here is a U.S. District Judge Anita Brody, right, who's you know, been handling this case. And I, I was kind of struck by one of the anecdotes near the end where you say well, there, an event at Columbia where, you know, Carp and Seeger and they're all there talking about this concussion settlement in 2018. And I'm just sort of curious about her role in this, too, because it seems like I'm not alleging that she's been weighted in any particular way, but it seems like if you were looking for a person to criticize at the way that these settlements have worked, she'd be one of those people that'd be in the crosshairs there, correct? No, absolutely. And I think she she has uh, deserving of at least answering questions about her oversight of the case. You know, I I write, I'm a sports reporter, but I'm also an investigative reporter, so I spend most of my time writing about lawyers and legal cases. And I think federal judges in America are like the closest thing to monarchs. I mean, they really, in terms of answering to an oversight, there's not a whole lot in, just in my experience. And so, yeah, Judge Brody's job is when she approves this settlement, which is basically a 65-year healthcare program for NFL players, it's going to last well into the 2080s, it's her job to make sure it's operating as it was described and agreed to. And so the issues we've documented and written about, the, the race norming thing that popped up in 2020, Complaints were being raised to her top deputies as far back as 2018, and she didn't act until somebody decided to hire a lawyer and sue over it. And then these scheduling breakdowns that we documented where guys are waiting and dying, waiting to get their paperwork. Again, nobody lifted a finger, as far as we could tell, to make any demonstrable changes until we started asking questions about it last summer. And there have been complaints raised about this issue since, again, 2018. I just want to say, just so Joel's not off on an island here, like there are only so many of these stories that I, I think you can expect one person to read. There's the Junior Seau story, the Dave Duerson story, the Mike Webster story. I think they affected me when I read them. And then it sounds like really inhumane to say this, but it just feels like they're kind of diminishing returns. Like how many... It, Partly for like self-preservation, like if you watch the NFL, you're like, if you just keep reading these stories one after the other, you can't kind of yes. 
enjoy the game in the in the same way. And so that doesn't necessarily speak well of me or anybody else as a person. But I think it does, again, speak to the challenge here journalistically, because I think, and this is, I guess, what the NFL is counting on, that there is a, re- a reader fatigue. There's a fan kind of fatigue on this issue. So one of the reasons we wanted to do this is to highlight the story to, so that it doesn't um, go away. But I would I would pose this to, I guess, both of you. Um, the kind of main thing that I came away with here is, look, it's there, there's just a big story about NBA players defrauding that league's healthcare system. It's like obviously not unheard of for there to be fraud in any healthcare system and in any professional league healthcare system. But Will, you, you mentioned a figure of something like $700 million. The NFL's revenue estimated in 2022 was $18.6 billion. If you add up the NFL's re- revenue cumulatively since the settlement came down or cumulatively since these players we're talking about started playing, $700 million, it's like less than a rounding error. And maybe it could make the issue go away even more <laughs> than it's currently gone away. So I asked that to you, Joel, and also to you, Will. Why did, Why would the NFL not just pay the pay the money? Why would they even care about if there's like a tiny bit of fraud, which I'm not even suggesting that there is, but who cares? Like, who cares? Just pay the $700 million, do the right thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, we may get into this in future stories. Uh, If you actually get into the nuts and bolts of some of these cases, what the NFL pays in legal fees to challenge some of these claims it has to be more than it would be to just pay a lot of them. And I do think there's a public relations. One lawyer around the case posited to me that part of it is a public relations boon of it's not just they don't want to have to spend as much, but they don't want to see as many. Every confirmed case is another confirmed former player who had an ailment that they still dispute you can get from playing football. Um, so there, there is that as well. Um, but no, your, your math is not wrong. I mean, no matter what big figure we're talking about, it could be billions, plural. It's still a manageable expense in the context of how much revenue that league generates year over year. And isn't it kind of just, I mean, not to, you know, make it really simple. Is this just not a matter of greed and in realizing that, you know, because actually one of the things that struck me, Will, as I read the story is the list of players here, like Don Maynard. Irv Cross, these are people that were like really notable figures Legends in the, of the NFL. Game. Legends of the game. Mm-hmm. But like by the time they get to the end of their life, like I realized as I read your story, I was like, oh, I had not realized that Irv Cross had died, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe there's just sort of an assumption that these people are going to sort of fade away and that they can just make it by extending these cases, that they can just sort of make it go away. And one quick thing, I just, because, you know, I wrote about Kevin Turner um, and here's a picture of him in, in your story, right? Um, he was an NFL fullback, um, and he died of complications from ALS in 2016. And I remember talking to him, and I was just like, you know, at that time, he had two sons that were playing football in middle school. And he's like, you know, how do you feel about them playing? And he's like, well, if they want to do it, they're going to do it. And, I mean, his son played in the NFL for about three years, and now he's an uh, analyst over at Clemson, and the other son is a receiver over at Clemson. And um, I also wonder, you know, Will, and I don't know how many current players you've talked to or, you know, if, if that's sort of the next step about this, but this is sort of an idea that there's essentially condi- conditioning current NFL players. Either you're going to have to fight for 
these benefits in the future or, you know, they're training them to essentially just kind of accept that it's not it's never going to get easier. Does that make does that make any sense or something like that? It does. And I think, you know, to respond to that, I kind of want to respond to a point that Josh raised earlier about reader um, apathy and, and desensitivity to these individual stories is that, you know, I, I just I as an investigative reporter focus on accountability. I uh, I have that same viewpoint about present-day players. If you started playing in the NFL after circa 2015, I think you are well aware and informed that every subsequent year you play this sport, there is an increased risk that you might develop something down the road. And those players know that. You see that in documentaries now, the Kelsey documentary. Jason's talking about how, you know, I I might have to deal with CTE years down the road because of of his career. And and he's doing that mental calculus of, like, isn't another season worth it? Um, The players that we wrote about in this piece and the players that I tend to focus on aren't those guys. These are the guys from previous generation who legitimately did not know uh, they they knew that they might have a bad back and bad knees and bad shoulders, et cetera. They didn't know that playing in the NFL might subject them to an increased risk for brain disease. And the NFL made a promise to them that they were gonna they were gonna compensate them, and make them whole for that. Um, so that that I think is worthwhile, worthy of reader interest and public scrutiny. Um, that makes sense. Will Hobson is a sports investigator reporter for the Washington Post. We'll link to his story on our show page. Will, thank you so much. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Joel. We appreciate it. Up next, Bill Bradley on his one-man show, Rolling Along, An American Story. Bill Bradley grew up in Crystal City, Missouri as the son of a banker. He went from there to Princeton University, where he was celebrated as the best college basketball player in the country. He was a Rhodes Scholar, a U.S. Senator, and in 2000, a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. But as he explains in his one-man show, Rolling Along, nothing in his life quite compared to his time with the New York Knicks. It was during those years that I thought I was part of the greatest team, the greatest sport, and the greatest city in the world. New Yorkers like winners, our team unity inspired them, and they showered us with love. It was the closest I ever came to feeling I belonged. Rolling Along, an American Story is now available to stream on Max, and joining us now is the star, Bill Bradley. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, guys. So, Senator Bradley, when you first got to the league, who was the first player to bust your ass? (laughs) I think it was a guy named Wayne Embry who was 6'9 and about uh, 260 and uh, was the backup center to Bill Russell. And the first game that uh, I played against the Celtics, uh, they ran me into picks set at half court by him. It was like crashing into a brick wall. So that honor belongs to Wayne Embry at the direction of the coach, I guess. Thank you so much for uh, playing along with us. And I wanted to ask you, as my first question, you've written books. There's a famous book about your time at Princeton written by John McPhee. Pretty much every famous athlete has an authorized documentary series these days. But you did something really different. You toured around the country. You performed a monologue that you wrote and memorized. Why did you decide to do that? Why is that something you wanted to do? Well, I wanted to do whatever I could to heal the divisions of the country. 
And I thought uh, telling my story might encourage other people to tell their stories. And the combination of all those stories, I think, would underline our common humanity, which is the opposite of the division we see in the country today. Now, the practical explanation was uh, I gave my papers to Princeton. They did an oral history, interviewed 60 people. I invited them to a reception, 40 showed. And afterwards, one of them came up to me, produced 72 plays in Broadway, Manny Eisenberg. And he said to me, after I stood up and spoke about each of the 40 that showed, he said, sounds a little bit like Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain. You ought to work something up. And so over the next year, I I wrote the piece and I took it to 20 cities and workshopped it around the country. Then COVID hit. And after COVID, of course, uh, I decided I was not going around to theaters. So I did it in, rented one theater, did it with five cameras, and the result is rolling along. Senator Bradley, I mean, obviously you've been addressing large audiences for many years, right? Especially since you've been in public life, but this is different. This is very intimate, right? And it almost seems like at times like you might, maybe you wouldn't cry, but there are spaces where other people could cry, right? While you're on stage. So like, what did it take for you to get comfortable up there to be so open and vulnerable with the crowd? Well, that's a really good question. First, I wrote it, right? So these were my words and my thoughts. And then I memorized it, which means you walk around Central Park and you groove it just like you groove a shot, right? And then it's allowing myself to feel the words as I speak them, allowing the truth and the deep feeling I have for what I say to come out. And there are several places where it's uh, very emotional, I hope, for people, because we did a uh, a focus group uh, when the film was finished, and the focus group was asked, uh, well, what is this really about? And they said, it's about all of us. It's about uh, love of the game, love of the country. It's about uh, forgiveness, perseverance, failure, triumph, sadness, joy. In other words, it's the human story, not a hero story. And that's what I wanted to do. One of the topics that you focus on a lot in the show is race, your relationships with your Black teammates. Um, You reference a comment that your aunt made that was a racist comment that you kind of put out there, maybe in a way that you wouldn't in a political speech or during a political campaign. But you also describe how you know, you were seen by some, by many, as a great white hope mm-hmm. in basketball, and that that made your relationship with some of your Black teammates uncomfortable. I'm wondering if the way that your career was framed and the way that your kind of whiteness was centered in a league and in a sport where the, a lot of the creativity, most of it, and the genius is from Black players, did that ever make you personally uncomfortable? Uh, No, as a matter of fact, going back a little bit to my aunt, I actually told that story many times in politics Okay, about my aunt. (laughs) This was not a breaking news story. This was something that I told in any number of speeches I'd given about race over the years because I chose to speak about race in any number of places in my career. And uh, in terms of coming into the league, I learned a lot more from my black teammates than they learned from me, I'll for sure tell you that. And among the many things I learned was uh, a better understanding 
of what it is to be black in America. And I can't, there's no way that I will truly understand that. But I got closer when Dick Barnett tells me stories about his all black Tennessee state team winning the small college championship, coming back to Nashville, going to a lunch counter sit-in downtown in Nashville and had to have the discipline not to respond when white people spit on him for protesting segregated restaurants. Or when an African-American rookie from Mississippi tells me he'll always vote because for 150 years his family was denied the right to vote. But then there's a story of Kazi Russell, who uh, was our teammate, great player, and on his drive down from Ann Arbor, he went to University of Michigan to a practice we were having in an off day in Detroit. He arrived late, and so he was fined. And um, after he was fined, about 10 minutes into the, into the practice, he's in a fight with a white rookie. And Willis Reed, our African-American captain and center, steps in to break it up. And Kazi snaps, Uncle Tom. And Willis says, Uncle Tom, was Uncle Tom going to do some ass whooping if you do that again? Only later did I discover that Kazi's lateness and foul mood came from being stopped by Michigan State Police on the way down and forced to lie spread eagle on the hood of his car as his trunk and backseat were searched. So my black teammates right now were lifelong friends, but at the beginning, their stories were deeply meaningful to me. Another, like a really emotionally resonant piece of uh, rolling along is when you talk about your mother, I mean, it seems like she was a woman that was like a couple of generations ahead of America. Like you talk about her being a college graduate, a real big sports fan. It seems like she was the one that really like pushed you in basketball, Senator Bradley. So can you just talk a little bit about her and how she sort of pushed you along? Because it, it certainly seemed like she wasn't exactly forthcoming with compliments or anything <laughs> and, and that she Seem to be wanting to, to, to drive you along all the way, right? I tell the story in the show that the first compliment I ever really got from her was actually on her deathbed when she looked up at me and said, Bill, you've been a good boy. I was 52, right? <laughs> so she was the one that oversaw the raising of a basketball hoop and blacktop in our backyard. She was the one who encouraged me. Yeah, I think that. She's a very important figure in my life. So, Senator Bradley, I mean, you end up at Princeton. And as you've mentioned in Rolling Along and in other interviews I've heard you talk about, like, you had offers from everywhere. You could have gone anywhere, you know, um, right. could have gone to Kansas, Missouri, right. Duke, whatever. But choosing Princeton, not necessarily a basketball <laughs> power, certainly not before, not really since you were there. I thought it was fascinating how you talked about um, how you ended up making that decision to go there. Do you mind talking about that, um, how sure. you ended up going to Princeton? Well, I signed an athletic scholarship to go to Duke at Please My Mother. So it was a good Methodist school, right? <laughs> My father was silent and he just said, you know, you ought to take a trip to Europe. Now, he could never graduated from high school. So this, this suggestion coming from him was a bit of a shock. So I took a trip to Europe. I was on the trip with 13 women and me. <laughs> and they couldn't figure <laughs> out why I chose Duke as opposed to Princeton or Yale. And then I came back from that trip. And I played baseball, broke my foot. And when, anytime you're injured, you contemplate the world without sports. And so I said, where do I want to go if I couldn't play basketball? And I'd wanted to be a diplomat at that stage of my life. And um, 
I decided that Princeton had the Woodrow Wilson School and I would uh, go to Princeton. And so uh, that's how I ended up in Princeton. I actually changed my mind on a Friday night, came home from a date, woke my parents up, told them I'd changed my mind. And on Sunday, I was on a plane to uh, New Jersey where I slept in a in a bed with no sheets <laughs> on my first night before the Princeton freshman class. So the choice was really where was the best place I could go to get education. And basketball would either take care of itself or not. You strike me as a, a genuinely modest guy, someone who has kind of ha- been on this quest to belong, kind of working hard to prove that you're good enough. And yet there's also this part of you where you go to the NBA and you have, I guess, all, all great athletes have to have an ego to think that you're good enough to compete against the best athletes in the world. And then you also obviously have to have an ego to think that you can be president of the United States, that you should you know, be the person to, to have that incredibly important job. So how do you reconcile those two sides of your personality? Well, I've always believed that with humility and hard work, you can excel at whatever you do. And I think that I wanted to excel and uh, in whatever I did. And it happened to be basketball and then politics. But, you know, I think that it's really important to uh, do that which you feel is the truest to yourself. And that's what put me in basketball and that's what put me in politics. Each of those moments were not predestined that I was going to do that. But ultimately, I decided to follow what was my deepest self as I knew it at the time. And um, so I took the leap each time. So, you know, you played basketball, you know, you're with the Knicks, and then you step into political campaigning for other Democratic candidates. And, you know, one thing I thought about is like we, we tend to think, oh, you know, people get into national level politics after sort of, you know, I was a mayor and then a state representative or whatever, but you leap out of that and just start running for senator. And so, you know, to Josh's point, your humility is like front and center with you, right? Like that is a, obviously a big part of your personality and the way that you sort of orient your way to the world. But like, what made you think, you know what? I should run for senator <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At, the, at this point in your life. Because I wanted to be a senator and life's short. And um, I didn't particularly want to be a councilman or to be a mayor, even though that's a good thing to be. I wanted to be a senator, and so I decided to run right out of the box for the Senate. I had thought about running for the Congress, ultimately, but I really was going to run for Congress so I could be there a couple of years and then run for the Senate. So why not run for the Senate right out of the box? And in New Jersey, I had been in the living rooms of millions of people in New Jersey for 10 years with the Knicks. They had a sense of who I was as a human being. And so I took the leap and threw my hat in the ring, which was not a preordained uh, victory by far, because I was running against a Democratic machine in New Jersey. And uh, we managed to win. And I had the people gave me their trust, and I always tried to live up to it. But of course, you have to have an ego if you're going to do anything. You have to have an ego if you're going to be a great interviewer. As I said, humility and hard work is the passage to where you want to go. When you announced that you weren't going to run for re-election, 
in 95, you said American politics were broken. I mean, and that was 1995. <laughs> I can only imagine what you think about politics today. But, but one other thing I kind of wanted to follow up with is that, you know, when Cory Booker replaced you in the Senate, you said he should make five Republican friends, right? So I want to ask you, who were your Republican friends that you had that you considered yourself close to? And what, did, what if anything, did you get out of those relationships? Uh, well, I had a number of Republican friends. Jack Danforth of Missouri was the first senator to come welcome me in the Senate. I'd I was in my office unpacking boxes, and he came in and welcomed me. Alan Simpson became a dear friend, still is today. Talked to him the other day. He's like 93, 94. See him every year. He and his wife, Ann. He did the last big immigration bill. And uh, I remember in that bill, I I went to see him. I just had a notepad full of questions, and he and I sat, and he answered the questions. And I said, well, you got my support. Uh, this nature of the friendship. And then Bob Packwood, of course, who was the chairman of the finance committee during all of tax reform, he became a, a close friend too. And I told Corey, there are, there are others. There's, those, that's not the only, the only Republicans. I had a, a, a many. But the point is, I told Corey that he should try to make five Republican friends. And, you know, he did that. And it produced for him. And I, I told him that because I said, at some point, they're going to find a way to help you. And he had a bill on foster children. And because he'd gone to um, Senator Imhoff, very conservative from Oklahoma, his office, he saw that he had an adopted child. And so he asked uh, Imhoff if he'd co-sponsored with him. He did and got other Republican votes. And it's now the law of the land. So, yeah, I always felt that we were human beings first, Americans second, politicians third, party members fourth. You started out telling us about Wayne Embry. I wanted to bookend that on our show. Every week we say, remember Zelmo Beatty, because it's our example of an athlete who kind of helped pave the way and is somebody that we think that folks of younger generations should think about and know and remember. So I wanted to ask you, what do you remember about Zelmo Beatty? Did you play against him in the NBA? And what can you tell us about him? What did I remember about Zelmo Beatty? That's the first time that question has been asked in the last 50 years. (laughs) What I remember is in one of my early exposures to Zelmo, I forget exactly what game, he cracked me with an elbow and split open my face. (laughs) Zelmo will always have a warm place in my heart in (laughs) high school I would go to St. Louis to play against big players and there was a game every Wednesday at Washington University Fieldhouse in which some of the pro Hawks came to scrimmage for a workout right and at one of those Zelmo Bainey was in the game and that's where I had the uh, the lacerated face from an elbow from Zelmo Beatty when I was a senior in high school, <laughs> between my junior and senior year. That's an incredible story. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. I, I yeah, I did. I did not expect that. <laughs> Bill Bradley is a U.S. senator. He's a basketball Hall of Famer. He's a Rhodes Scholar, and he is the star of Rolling Along, an American story. It's great. You should uh, stream it on Max when you have a chance. Bill Bradley, thank you so much. Thank you.
Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Saylors, who says it was okay. You may have heard in our final segment, we talked with uh, Senator Bill Bradley about the first NBA player to bust his ass. And for those of you all that don't know where that comes from, that is an opening line from one of our favorite podcasts, The Knuckleheads, uh, featuring Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles. And that's the regular question that they ask every guest that comes on. It's the first question they ask of every show. So we thought it'd be fun to get that by Bill Bradley. And he came up with Wayne Embry. But who is Wayne Embry? Well, former NBA player, as you might have guessed, he played in the league for 11 years for the Cincinnati Royals, the Boston Celtics, and the Milwaukee Bucks. He also is better known as the first black general manager and team president in NBA history. He was a five-time NBA All-Star. And uh, as Senator Bradley mentions, he was Bill Russell's backup with those some of those great Boston Celtics teams uh, from 66 to 67, 67, 68. And in that final year, he was part of the NBA champion. Uh, there with the Boston Celtics. So Wayne Embry, man, busting asses and taking names and then went on to become, you know, one of the legendary front office guys in NBA history. So who knows what answer you'll get when you ask somebody who busts their ass in NBA, right? So Josh, uh, who was the first person to bust you? No, I'm sorry. Who's your Wayne Embry this week? The other day, as I often do, I was listening to Zach Lowe's NBA podcast, The Low Post, when I heard this. Their ideal world is Trade Levine, Get our salary sheet in order. Get what we can get for him. Their ideal world is trade Levine, Joel. A little harsh, but mm. okay. Then, Sometimes you got you to gotta, you know, <laughs> give a little to get a little. You know what I mean? So. Good point. Um, but then it, it, gets, it gets more intense from there. A few mo- moments later, <laughs> Zach Lowe's ESPN colleague Chris Herring chimed in. Levine coming back from the first injury in some ways served as a runway and an opportunity for him to kind of showcase what he could do. All right, showcase what he could do. I like that. I like that. But but wait, it, it keeps going. It would feel like it's bottoming out Levine's value because it's like, man, this guy is certainly talented, is certainly skilled, but is he a powder on some level? Is he a powder? This is starting to get a little personal. I, I'm not even sure what the point of holding on to Levine is if it's going to hamstring you from feeling like you can do anything else because you're just stuck in this place. Stuck with Levine. How dare they? They should be so lucky to be stuck with Levine. Um, The guy they're talking about is a basketball player, Zach Levine of the Chicago Bulls. Amazing shooter, past slam dunk contest winner in what some would say is the greatest slam dunk contest of all time. A multi-time all-star who in 2022 signed a five-year, $215.2 million max contract. I can relate to the .2 part. Um, But so the pundits tell me, Joel, this Levine character, he's often indifferent to defense. He doesn't necessarily, as the cliche goes, contribute to winning. And now he's out for the season because he needs foot surgery, which means that for the Bulls, he's untradeable. They are stuck with Levine. But for my purposes, most importantly, he's the only athlete playing currently whose last name, L-A, capital V-I-N-E, is pronounced like my last name, L-E-V-I-N. Now, to answer the question that at least maybe my parents have, in 2014, the writer Fred Katz tweeted, I once asked Zach Levine if people ever accuse him of being Jewish. He didn't seem to get it. It was a fun conversation. (laughs) So no, Zach Levine, not a Jew. Zach's father, Paul Levine, actually played in the USFL, Joel, for the Portland Breakers, and he was on an NFL roster for the Seahawks, and he wasn't the only Levine to make a name for himself and 
transitively for me on the gridiron. Midway through the third quarter, L.T. Levine ignited the Jayhawk offense. He breaks to the 30. He's down to the 20. Being chased at the 10. Five. Touchdown. L.T. Levine and Kansas. Boy, there's the big play they've been waiting for all afternoon. So, yes, I've been waiting to, you know, figure out how to break it to you for years. Levine had a better college career as a running back than Anderson did. L.T. Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, ran for more than 2,000 yards and 21 touchdowns at Kansas back when they were, you know, how Kansas used to be, between 1992 and 1995. In 2017, he was elected to the Hall of Fame in his hometown of Woodbridge, New Jersey. And according to his induction biography, he is a regional manager in the security industry now. All right. So to make this only slightly less solipsistic, I just think it's funny to have a kind of uncommon last name with a pretty uncommon pronunciation, so much so that there's maybe one or at most two pro athletes who share it. And so when Levine scores a touchdown or Levine dogs it on defense, then you kind of take it personally. If anybody out there has a similar experience, you can share it with us at hangupitslate.com. Joel, I'm guessing that you cannot exactly relate to this phenomenon, but are there any Andersons that you have either claimed as your own or oh. tried to disavow? Well, less disavow, but um, I definitely tried to claim Neil Anderson. I think Chicago Bears fans will remember him. He's the guy that followed up Walter Payton. Um there and he was pretty good. I think he was a Pro Bowl back for a little bit, but really he went to Florida, the, right? I, did he go to Florida? That, that 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 sounds about right. But the guy that I really claimed was Kenny Anderson. Um, mm. You know, Kenny Anderson had his heyday when I was a teenager, and I'll never forget. I visited my father's friends in Arkansas, and he was getting drafted that night uh, on TV. And the guy that my father's friend had a guy that was just crazy about Kenny Anderson. So I was like, I'd never seen Kenny Anderson play, but from that point on. Uh, I said that he was my cousin. So for many years, I would lie to people and say that Kenny Anderson was my cousin. <laughs> and uh, also, I liked playing with him on NBA Live, like 93 or 94. It was like him and Derek Coleman, they had a little two-man game going. So yeah, man, Kenny Anderson was my dude. I haven't really found many Andersons I disavow. There is a guy on Google who's like a San Diego County supervisor who has my <laughs> exact name. He's a Republican. Uh, you know, if that's what you want to do, fine. But uh, I, I don't claim him, put it that way. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like our our NBA avatars are kind of similar in that they're both like unbelievably talented players who kind of had a little reputation for being offense first, maybe not <laughs> guys that you want like you know nailing down your defense on a championship contender, but like just highlights galore. And and what else could you could you want from your uh, fr- from a guy with your last name than just a highlight after highlight? I mean, I will say, like, it, I mean, what are they going to do? Him getting in the chair, you know? I mean, what is that? I mean, what is that going to do? I want somebody that's, you know, dime, you know, diamond people up, you know, beating people off the dribble. That's, you know, that's what you want. But yeah, LT Levine, I did. I'm surprised I never, I didn't know about him. We we played against Kansas when I was at TCU in that era, and they had a running back named June Henley who kicked our ass. I mean, he ran for like 200 yards. So June Henley and LT Levine were shared the backfield for for a period oh. of time. Oh, they did. But I, okay, but LT uh, graduated in '95, so um, okay. Well, we I didn't get a chance for him to beat our ass, but uh, June Henley <laughs> certainly got his in on us. <laughs> that is our show for today. Uh, thank you to all Levines who are are doing us proud, no matter 
the spelling of their last names. Uh, our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening.